E-Longevity, bringing space, crypto, and longevity science discussion to the masses. Welcome. We're happy that you're here. Welcome to E-Longevity, everyone. This is our flagship effort to bring E-Longevity to the masses. I'm codenamed Lou, one of the early Discord admins and Dojalon lover, and I have a deep love for the Methuselah Foundation and their mission to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. And I do believe that we'll actually make that happen. Um, we want to welcome our co-hosts, Cool Andy and Britannia. Hello, um, Britannia00. Um, I bring with me 17 years of healthcare experience on the commercial side for a biotech company. Um, I also have my MBA, MHA, and I have been a Dogalon holder since May of 2021. Um, I'm Cool Andy Neat, and I'm a registered nurse and Dogalon holder since uh, 2021 as well. And I want to live as long as possible. I think that's fair enough to say we all want to live a little longer. Um, but we have a, a fourth voice, if you've heard, in the background. That's the longevity crusader himself, Aubrey de Grey. Welcome. Welcome to our show, Aubrey. Well, thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> so first off, many may not know. They know who you are, what you've done, but they don't know where you come from. So can you tell us a little bit about your past? Where do you come from? And then how did you get involved in longevity? Sure, yeah. So, um, as I, you can probably tell from my unintelligible accent, I am from that far-off place called the rest of the world, um, from the UK. <laughs> um, and I lived there until maybe 12 years ago, something like that. Um, so, but mm. I've lived in the California Bay Area um, since then. And I worked originally as a computer scientist for the first several years of my career. I, my bachelor's degree was in computer science. Uh, I worked in artificial intelligence research. Um, but in my, in my early 30s, I switched fields to the biology of aging, essentially because I found out by accident, more or less, that it really wasn't being pursued very much. And that was shocking to me. So I thought, you know, let's see what I can do. And um, I had a bunch of good luck that allowed me to uh, make a bit of a name for myself <laughs> quickly, and I've taken it from there, really. So yes, I, um, I've spent the past 25 years working in the biology of aging. Uh, I'm not in favor of aging, I'm trying to fix it, and I seem to be making some progress. That's a nice little summary of where you come from. Thank you for, for letting us know that. On that point, nine years ago, you mentioned that aging is a side effect of being alive. Um, do you still believe that? That's certainly true. And it's, not, <laughs> it, it's not remotely controversial. Um, aging is simply the accumulation of initially harmless, but eventually problematic, self-inflicted damage that the body does to itself. And this is just the same as it is for a car or an aeroplane or any simple man-made machine. It's, a, it's nothing to do with biology. It's a, it's a fact of physics that any machine that has moving parts is going to do itself damage as a consequence of its normal operation. So, you know, that's uh, the, the reason I highlight that is really not in order to say anything that anyone would disagree with. It's really just in order to demystify aging and get you know, people who are not biologists to understand that aging is actually not a weird thing. I really appreciate that, um, that response to it because I, 
as you as you're speaking about thermodynamics, do you feel like aging falls into the same category of let's say um, perpetual motion? <laughs> no. So you've got to be very careful with applying the second law of thermodynamics to the phenomenon of aging, because of course the second law applies to closed systems, systems that are not exchanging energy with their environment. And living organisms certainly are. In fact, the only reason that we stay alive for a tiny fraction of how long we do stay alive is because we are machines that are very good at exporting entropy into the environment. Um, so um, another way to think about that is to look at babies. Why are babies born young? It's because the mother is capable of using energy to partition entropy so that the fetus gets very little of it and is born young. Um, it's just like that. So you can't really use that um, you know, in the simplistic sense. It isn't completely wrong to talk about thermodynamics in relation to aging, though, because really aging consists of the accumulation of, as I said, this self-inflicted damage, but the body has masses of inbuilt, automatic damage repair machinery, okay? And that keeps certain types of potential damage under control. In other words, it keeps them from accumulating. So the only reason we actually age is because that arsenal of automatic, built-in, self-repair machinery is not 100% comprehensive. There are types of damage that accumulate because of the second law, really, um, that are simply not counteracted by export of that entropy, and therefore they accumulate. Like, so what, what studies are you seeing, or what, or what technologies are you seeing in like maybe adjacent sciences um, what, what, like that you just take a full interest in? Um, like you know, advances in immunotherapy, um, you know, I mean, I mean, that's the, that, that's the one that comes to mind for me, but like, is, is there anything that's being researched, not for directly for longevity that you're just going, Oh my gosh, we could use that technology for longevity. So, um, you're asking a very good question there. A lot of, in fact, I would say perhaps even the primary theme of my work over the past 25 years has been mm. precisely to identify these relevant adjacencies, um, the, to identify um, fields, uh, communities, research that would not has not historically been considered to be relevant to the biology of aging and yeah. seeing a way in which it is relevant and bringing it together. So um, I guess if you want to look at the single thing that I'm best known for, it's the idea that um, the best way to deal with aging to postpone the health problems of late life is to repair the progressively accumulating damage that I spoke about already. Mm -hmm. And that really constitutes an adjacency thing. In other words, mm -hmm. it's all about essentially applying the principles of regenerative medicine to the problem of aging. This is something that people hadn't really done before. And so I basically dragged those two fields together. Um, and there are, you know, various examples of this that, like one perhaps particularly conspicuous example is that the way in which I proposed, and which is now going forward very well, to eliminate waste products that accumulate in the cell mm -hmm. is to adopt technology that comes from environmental decontamination. 
So not even medicine, right? You know, completely outside of medicine. And, but I just happened to, you know, see the right talk or, you know, know the right person and, and put two and two together. And here we are. So, so when, you, when you speak about regenerative uh, medicine and therapy, in your mind, what would be like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of, in terms of development and achievement with that? And then what would be the, the holy grail or maybe the hardest achievement uh, in terms of the full spectrum of the body and aging? Yeah, so I don't really think of it quite that way, except in so far as sure. how I prioritize what my own organization works on. The reason it's not yeah. entirely right to think about it that way is because the damage repair paradigm is very much a divide and conquer paradigm. Essentially, we've got mm -hmm. you know, this very, 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 very complicated machine called the human body, which is damaging itself in all manner of different ways at the same time. And those types of damage are accumulating, and any one of them can kill you on its own, more or less on schedule, <laughs> um, you know, however right. well we fix all the others. The th fact is that this damage repair approach has to be a multi-treatment, a panel of interventions applied to the same people at the same time. Yeah. So for that reason, I don't really think in terms of lower-hanging fruit and less low-hanging fruit as, you know, things that we could do as alternatives to each other. Mm -hmm. It's more a case of um, I work on things, I get people to work on things, I you know, bring money in so that I can pay people to work on things um, <laughs> that are not being worked on by other people, but that need to be worked on, so as to make sure that no vital component, no vital item in the list of things that need to be fixed is neglected and kind of, you know, falls behind. I was I was just going to ask a question around, you know, the ethics behind it, right? So, you know, do we all want to live to be 150 or 200 or 300 years of age, right? Yeah, so, so, so I've been answering this question for about, I've been answering this question for about 20 years. And um, yeah, my answers have become increasingly more um, sarcastic uh, as time's gone on. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about pointing out to people that this is not actually about longevity at all. Longevity right. is purely a side effect of health. So the question that people need to be asking themselves is not, do they want to live X amount of years? But the question is, do they ever want to get sick, want to get sick? Right. How, you know, is, there, is there interest in getting sick somehow dependent on how long ago they were born? And of course, the answer is no, nobody wants to get sick however long ago they were born. Now, it just so happens that if you don't get sick, you're probably not going to fall, you know, to, to, you know, to die in your sleep tomorrow, right? Therefore, um, you know, there's this, there's this correlation, there's this linkage. But it means that there is absolutely no point in having an opinion about how long you want to live. Apart from anything else, you can always change your mind. You know, how, what time do you want to go to the toilet next Christmas day? You know, you might have an opinion about what time you expect to go to the toilet because of, you know, habit. But having an opinion about what time you want to go makes no sense whatsoever because you know perfectly well that you're going to have more information on the topic nearer the time, right? And you're going to be able to act on that. So, yeah. I like that explanation a lot. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to kind you of... Tell, you can tell I've working on these for a while, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so automatic. But I do, I do appreciate that different perspective on longevity. Most people think longevity is connected to everything, when in fact, everyone really just wants to be healthy. We're, we're talking about health span, 
uh, as opposed right. to lifespan. Now, just right. to pivot a little bit, you've been aligned with many forward-moving organizations in your past with the Methuselah Foundation, with SENS, and now with LEV. Can you tell us a little bit about that and also about your flagship study that we've been hearing about? So, well, let me see how to go about that because there's a lot of things to unpack there. So, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it in reverse chronological order. So right now, um, I have this foundation called LEV Foundation, Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, which is focused on, as usual, being the heretic in the room, you know, being the guy who gets out there and um, gets things to happen that nobody else is doing. And in particular, we have a very um, important flagship project to combine a bunch of rejuvenation therapies in mice uh, and you know, starting starting these treatments when the mice are already in middle age, and trying to get them to live as long as possible. That's, hmm. That 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 um, experiment is just beginning. It's very courageous. It's the kind of experiment that basically nobody else has had the courage to try, and it's very expensive, but it's happening. I'm delighted to say. Um, the, the, the reason we're working on that right now is because what I did with my previous organization, Sense Research Foundation, is pretty much mainstream now. What I did with Sense Research Foundation, which, uh, which was created in, tw in 2009, was to make rejuvenation a mainstream thing. The, uh, the rejuvenation is synonymous with damage repair. And so we worked on a whole bunch of different types of damage repair, uh, repair of different types of damage. And in particular, we focused on ones that other people were not working on very much because they were thought to be too hard or whatever. And over and over again, in various different um, fields, we were able to make progress that people really didn't think could be done. And that led to a, the situation that exists these days where rejuvenation is completely something that the mainstream that people you know people in the mainstream are comfortable with so that job is more or less done but the thing that lev foundation is doing that srf really never did and really could not have done because it could not have been done until quite recently is to put thing put damage repair therapies together to combine them and that, again, is something that basically it's just outside of the incentive structure of other people, whether academia or whether the private sector. And so it falls to people like myself, you know, people, an organization that is funded entirely by philanthropy and therefore does not have to worry about, you know, the short termism that constrains other people. Um, and, and that's why we're doing it. But the reason I went in this order was so that after I talked about SRF, Science Research Foundation, I could talk about Methuselah. Because, of course, you guys are connected very closely to Methuselah. And Methuselah Foundation was the first organization that I created, of course, jointly with the amazing Dave Goebel back in 2002, 2003. Um, honestly, you know, back then, uh, I mean, you guys, like... It's just like you cannot imagine how different the world was in relation to the uh, conversation around longevity. It was just like it was a completely different world. And Dave and I went out and we tried to change that. And, of course, we started out with prizes. We had no money to speak of, so we created these things, the Methuselah Mouse Prizes. 
um, really for the purpose of doing PR, to raise the profile of longevity research and make it interesting and respectable and so on. And it worked really well. That's really why we were able in 2009 to split the foundation in two and create Sense Research Foundation um, on, on, the, like, on the research side uh, while the Methuselah Foundation was prioritizing the more the PR side, side of things. Of course, it's become more complicated since then. We've both, we both do both now. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I still have, you know, I still regard Dave, and I've said this publicly many times, as my foremost oracle. He is one of the, one of the smartest people with the best judgment that I've ever had the privilege to work with. And, you know, I am delighted to be continuing to work with him as a science advisor, obviously, at, at Methuselah. Um, furthermore, of course, I um, I'm very happy that, along with other organisations, but certainly Methuselah is doing really, really great work. Um, they, what, that includes, of course, the prizes that they're pursuing. It also includes the um, uh, the, the Methuselah Fund and the uh, companies that the startup companies that are being funded by Methuselah. You know, so it's one of the most important organisations in the field almost as important as my own. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm really delighted. 20 years ago, you and Dave Goebel pioneered the, the, the research and the focus on longevity, which we all appreciate, absolutely. I also view Dave as an oracle of sorts. But now, 20 years later, we, we come back to mice. It started with the mouse prize, and now we're back to mice. So my question is, when it comes to this this research that you're that you're doing what's going to be novel about it for example are you just going to use mrna cocktails to give to mice to to test on them or but what's going to be novel about it great question so um of course mice have never gone away they've always been the model organism of choice uh, but no i mean what's <laughs> going to be novel is the combining in fact we are deliberately avoiding too much novelty when we choose the things the, the individual components to combine we are prioritizing things which individually have already been shown by other people to um, have you know, some effect on not only average lifespan, but maximum lifespan, even when they are initiated relatively late in life, like in middle age in the mice. We want that as the baseline, and we then combine these things to find out the extent to which these things can synergize. Of course, there may be cases where they actually antagonize each other, and the experiment is designed to identify those things as well. Um, but yes, the idea is to use this kind of combination work, which nobody else is doing, to discover the best way to postpone the health problems of late life. And of course, there are two real motivations there. One of them is that we may actually find things that have a good chance, or we think have a good chance of working in human beings, because at the end of the day, human beings are the organisms we care about. Um, and the other is rhetorical. It's that the more we can postpone the health problems of late life in mice, the more impossible it becomes for the naysayers to go out and say, oh, you know, aging is not a disease and it's kind of woven into the fabric of the universe and medicine will never be able to do anything about it. I mean, so we've, we've done a couple of episodes so far. And one thing that I haven't asked so far, but I think you'd be the perfect person to ask the question is, what is your relationship with death? We talk so much about, about life. We talk so much about longevity. Um, 
I, I, I mean, I'll admit, so I, I was very uncomfortable with death for a long time, um, and I had to come to terms with it. I, I did ER nursing, and you just see death everywhere, and you either have to come to terms with it or be crippled by it. I mean, you work with, you work in this field all day. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's my question. And it's an open-ended question, I guess. Uh, what is your relationship with uh, that? Sure. So I don't really have one. And I have the most intense admiration for everybody who works in the medical profession, whether it's nurses or doctors or whatever. You know, I personally, I don't think emotionally I could do it. I have run my life in an interesting way when it comes to managing my own emotions. One, one conspicuous example is that I chose never to learn to drive um, because I just, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether it's my fault that I hit someone and they die. You know, if someone yeah. is completely their fault, I still don't want to be the, the driver, right? So, um, yeah. you know, that, it, so in that sense, I've deliberately avoided forming a relationship with death. Um, and when yeah. I think about, uh, you know, the relationship of my work to death, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, that, you know, lifespan is a, is a side effect of health span. And so I don't really think about it at all. That's very interesting. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Uh, what, a, what a great question. Okay, now, let's speak about the big news that we heard yesterday with Methuselah. What do you think is the benefit of the convergence of longevity science and crypto? Well, right. So, um, of course, Vitalik Buterin, who was the person who donated the Dogelon. Is it Dogelon or Dogelon? Tell me. It's Dogelon. Come on, tell me. Tell me. <laughs> It's Dogelon. <laughs> Either no, one. No. You know, it, it's but, something that is best written and not pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, this happened in the biology of aging maybe 20 years ago when autophagy became a thing. So a lot, most people would say autophagy, but some people wanted to say autophagy. And it became a huge th deal. And one of the pro prominent researchers in the field made badges for everybody in a conference, um, it, which had a car being eaten, and like an auto, auto, uh, uh, an automobile being eaten. Um, um, uh, anyway, so enough of that. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, Vitalik Buterin, who of course gave the Dogelon to Methuselah, was the first crypto big hitter to start putting money into longevity research. He started giving money to me at Science Research Foundation in, I think, 2017, which was more or less as soon as he was in a position to, you know, to, to make significant donations. And I believe his first donation to Methuselah was not very long after that. Um, uh, but really, it was only, it was only Vitalik for a, for a mighty long time, until the beginning of 2021, when everything exploded. Essentially, the first thing that happened was an enormously, an amazing guy named James Fickle, uh, he's not a name that most people know. He um, doesn't you know, put himself about very much. But when he was a young guy, just out of college, you know, just entry-level software engineer in the Bay, he, you know, this was like five or six years ago now, he came across Ethereum. And he was hooked. And he basically scraped together every dollar he could beg, borrow, or steal, and he spent it all on Ethereum. At a time when Ethereum was worth 80 Sense. So he basically <laughs> was able to um, uh, buy half a million Ethereum, 
with 400k and um, obviously he's worth quite a lot these days so he um, did exactly what Vitalik did Vitalik read my book when he was 14 and that's how he was hooked James read my book in 2020 during the lockdown and he was hooked and um, and he you know gave us a bit of money and um, uh, started seeking my advice about how to spend more money and so on so that was great but he did one thing that um, Vitalik never really did which was he started really leveraging his connection uh, you know he's you know got he's got a very high respect level in the high, in the high net worth crypto community simply because he went full YOLO, as they say, you know, you only lived one, live once and, you know, did, did what he did. Um, and so, yeah, long and short of it was he's brought in a couple of other really big hitters in the crypto community into the longevity um, uh, funding world. And the key thing about all of this is it's all philanthropic. So like 2016, 2017 was the time when investors, people who actually want to make money out of this field, started getting involved. And these were, you know, very good people. They were, first of all, very courageous early stage investors. I'm talking about Michael Grieve and Jim Mellon and people like that, right? And these people, um, you know, they also donated substantially to, to Science Research Foundation and elsewhere. Um, and that was great. But at the end of the day, they were fundamentally investors at heart. And so they were very much funding the low-hanging fruits, the components of the damage repair portfolio that were closest to commercialization. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there was an absolute vital necessity for other people to come in and fund the stuff that was very much pre-investable. And that's what happened when James and his crew came along to join forces with Vitalik and make things really happen. And then, of course, six months after that, there was this airdrop when Richard Hart, who, you know, I understand is quite a polarizing figure within the crypto community, but nevertheless, who um, has done rather well with Hex and who has created an extraordinarily large community of devotees. Um, he, he, rather than writing it a big check the way he could have done and the way these other people did, um, he, uh, you know, encouraged his community to do that. And the result was a completely transformational donation, uh, a series of, of more than 2,000 donations over a period of two weeks in July of 2021 to Science Research Foundation. So, yeah, the crypto world, in terms of especially the philanthropic um, component of the, of the field, of the movement, has made the most enormous difference. But where do you see um, crypto in, the, in this space with longevity um, and then also, do you see it branching out in other areas within the longevity, um, I guess, and like the, and the, within longevity yeah. and other so, aspects of it? So, so, I mean, the way I see it is actually, I mean, let's actually talk about Dojalon specifically, because, of course, there we have the space dimension as well. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that there is no, it's no surprise at all that the crypto community are very into this because fundamentally the crypto community are geeks and this is an engineering problem, right? So they get that part. Um, <laughs> secondly, yeah, a lot of them, including a lot of the very wealthy ones are young and they have not been ground down by failure and you know, they still have the ability to aim high, which is something that most people lose over the years. Um, but also, I mean, fundamentally, it's just like wanting to... Um, 
one who's being comfortable with with ending high, yeah, with with doing things that will fundamentally change the quality of life, not to mention quantity of life, of humanity. And of course, the space community is very much like that too. There's always been a linkage there. The very first five-digit donor to me was a guy named Gary Hudson, who's a bit of a um, dark horse when, when, in the space community, but he, um, you know, he was uh, very involved in the early stages of the private um, space industry. Um, and then when Dave and I started the Methuselah Foundation, our very first business advisor was Peter Diamandis in the early days of the XPRIZE Foundation. In fact, Dave and Peter worked together to create the, their respective 501c3s back in like 01 or 02. Um, and it's gone on since then. You know, Jeff Bezos, of course, has, you know, he's very much a space person, um, uh, and he's put masses of money into, um, into aging over the past year or two in the form of Altos Labs. Um, you know, he took his, took his own good time, I have to say, because the, his first exposure to all of this was when he met me at TED in 2006. And I interacted with him repeatedly over, the, over those years, more than a decade ago. But eventually he's decided to, and now's the time to, 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 to go large, as they say, in that <laughs> regard. I have a, a question in that, in that regard. You mentioned these names. Why do you think longevity is not more mainstream? That's a very easy question to answer. The fundamental reason why longevity is not very mainstream is because nearly everybody is too scared to get their hopes up. They know that, and they know in their heart of hearts that aging is a medical problem and it's a problem that will eventually be solved. But they know very well that there's no way of knowing how soon. In other words, whether it'll be in time for them. And so they find it easier psychologically to continue to trick themselves into believing that actually it's not a medical problem at all, or it's a problem that's impossible to solve, or that it's a blessing in disguise, or whatever. It doesn't matter what they think, just as so long as they succeed in putting it out of their minds and getting on with their miserably short lives and making the best of it, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen to them in the future, what they think is, right? Which is, you know, I mean, I don't really condemn that. It's human nature, right? But it's definitely the main reason. It's the reason why the vast majority of science fiction uh, talking about a post-aging world, world, whether it's in books or in movies, is dystopic. You know, that's what sells. It helps people to, in, it entrenches people's belief that, um, you know, aging is a blessing in disguise and they don't need to think about it. Excellent answer. I... Uh... I'm going to, I can't wait for, for the transcript of this episode so I can go over what you said and use it again in future episodes. Um, so, uh, here's, here's another. Oh, I was going to oh, say, go ahead, I, I just wanted to mention, ahead, um, uh, we, we did interview Gary Hudson. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, right. he's, we're, we're on the right path. And it, and the, yeah, of course, Gary's played an enormous role. Yeah, Gary's played an enormous role over the years. Of course, he didn't just make donations early on. He also acted as executive chair or whatever of a couple of very important companies, not least TurnBio, which is, of course, very closely linked to Methuselah. Of course, TurnBio. So one thing I haven't heard you say in my research is that we're going to accomplish 
this by a certain time. So here's my question to you. What do you hope your studies accomplish and by when? Well, I'm fairly astonished that you have not heard me say time frames because I say them all the time. <laughs> um, but I say them very carefully. I say them probabilistically. So I currently believe that we have at least a 50-50 chance of reaching a particular threshold that I defined nearly 20 years ago called longevity escape velocity, which is now the name of my new foundation, um, within about 15 years from now. In fact, I would say it's coming down. It might be even as little as 13 years by now. Um, now, so what is uh, longevity escape velocity and why the 50-50 chance? Well, let me deal with the 50-50 chance bit first. Of course, the thing is that any pioneering technology is extremely speculative when it comes to time frames. You know, there were you know, top physicists saying that powered flight was theoretically impossible right up until it was done. But conversely, we can be fairly sure that Leonardo da Vinci did not think that it would take 400 years to realize his designs. So, you know, you just don't know. So when I say, you know, 50-50 chance of getting there in, let's say, 13, 14, 15 years, there's also at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years if we hit a whole bunch of unforeseen obstacles, right? Um, all right, so what is longevity escape velocity? It's the point where we are, pra in practice, done with aging. Now, what does that mean? That means that we are developing rejuvenation therapies, damage repair therapies, that are postponing the health problems of late life faster than time is passing. So that means we can take people who are getting obviously chronologically older by one year per year, but stop them from getting biologically older, remove damage from their bodies as fast as the body is laying that damage down. So, okay. Okay, so here's another question. We have... We have um, we've got different ages of people and different generations and we think of ideas, antiquated ideas, and we go, well, that'll die out, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, sometimes it's hate, sometimes it's uh, uh, economic values or points of view. What happens when we hit longevity escape velocity and we're stuck with a bunch of <laughs> people that need to evolve? I mean, like how, like, how is that gonna affect culture? I don't actually think the problem's going to arise because yeah. the problem fundamentally arises now because of societal constraints, not because of anything inherent. Of course, it's not just societal constraints, it's also biological constraints, but that's what we're going to fix. We're going to make sure that the brain does not fill up with garbage that stops it from working so well, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, look at, look at someone like myself, right? I switched careers when I was 30, and I've done all right since then, and I'm by no means the only person who's done that. The whole of molecular biology was invented in the 1950s by a bunch of physicists. You know, so, um, you know, switching what you do with your head, with your mind, is a damn good way to counteract the fact that you were born a long time ago. And, um, you know, of course, that can be encouraged, whether it's by taxation or by other means, you know. So I, don't, I, I really don't expect this problem to arise at all. And, and I, I, I think to your point, I think once you get to 500, um, who cares if you were born in the 1980s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s? It's like that's all just going to be on such a, a it's going to look like an ant, you know, in, it, from, in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, that, right. that makes sense. And uh, hopefully people are 
still have neuroplasticity in, in terms of how they're learning and, uh, and what they're accepting as, as reality in the future. Indeed. And hopefully, to your point, Andy, like mentally, you know, we're evolving and getting smarter and wiser, right? Instead of just <laughs> keeping the same body, but thinking the same yeah. way, yeah. right? So Aubrey, here's uh, some, some closing questions for you. Where can anyone who's listening to this podcast find information on what you're doing? So, of course, we have a website, LEV Foundation, so that's levf.org. And uh, uh, everything we're doing is, is, is discussed there. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, you, know, you can get me, find me there easily enough, Aubrey de Grey. Um, I uh, have an email address, Aubrey at levf.org. <laughs> Anyone can write to me. Okay, and what books are you... Right. (laughs) I'm sure you're going to get a flood of... My approach has always been to be a man of the people. It's it's what comes naturally to me, and it also works. That's what crusaders do. Caped crusaders as well. They're for the people. So what are you reading right now? I don't have time to read much except research papers. Obviously, you know, things come across my desk all the time, but no, I don't read for recreation. And I'm going to steal Andy's question. Um, what What are you listening to? What music specifically? Music because it, it could be uh, books yeah. on on tape or audio audibles. Yeah, I don't really do much of that either. You know. Um, are you cooking? What are, you, <laughs> what are your hobbies? Came out before any of you Try were me. born. Try us. Um, and. Um, yeah, you know, I've been transported here from the 20th century, so I'm. Um, yeah, but 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 no, I don't I don't I don't get I don't get that to like live gigs and so on very much. I just don't have the time. I've got too much work to do. Hmm. And I appreciate that. Also, how do you get around? You said you don't you don't drive. That's that's one of our- Yeah, well, it's the miracle of Uber. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I. 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 I, I you know, for until I lived, where, I live now in the mountains, in Santa Cruz Mountains, like six or eight miles south of San Jose. And so I do actually need, you know, transportation. And so that happens because of Uber and because of people who live here. But um, before that, actually, I didn't need it. You know, I was living in cities. And in the UK, you know, everything's much closer together. You can take a bicycle on the train for free and so on. So it wasn't really a problem. Wow. We really appreciate you taking this time out to speak with us and the Elongevity family, the Dogalon, 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 however you want to say it. <laughs> Community really appreciates it. I'm making it. buttons. I'm, I'm taking after Aubrey's <laughs> yeah. uh, recommendation. Well, likewise, you know, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to speak to you and your community because, you know, this is definitely our community now, right? Yes. It's definitely part, I definitely feel part of it. Absolutely. We're going to look forward to what LEVF is doing, what you're doing. We wish you success. And this has been the Elongevity Podcast. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you.